the older I get, I think you're sort of born an entrepreneur because you have to have this resilience level um, that is sort of like probably a mental disorder. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have John Carter, who is the CEO of Empire. John is an experienced entrepreneur who has founded five internet businesses, his first at age 19, and then he retired at age 27. But wait, there's more. We'll talk about that in a little bit. John, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do over there at Empire? Sure. So um, you did a good job describing sort of who I am. A uh, serial entrepreneur, you know, started started pretty young. And there's actually a bunch of funny businesses, if we have time, like starting at like age 10. But uh, Empire, the, the current company, is a business that helps websites and apps generate a new revenue stream from online to offline commerce. And, and maybe we'll get into more detail on it, but we just uh, announced a partnership. We're just announcing a partnership with Yelp. And what we do is we provide them with about 10,000 um, restaurant offers where their consumers can earn 10% cash back at these restaurants. But the technology we have that makes it kind of cool is instead of these consumers having to buy a daily deal voucher or carry in a coupon, they just link up any debit or credit card to Yelp using our system. And then when they walk into those restaurants and buy, instantly they get notified that they just earned cash back. There's no coupon to show. There's no app to show. It's really frictionless and, and pretty cool consumer experience. And consumer gets 10% cash back paid monthly to them. And Yelp earns a percentage on every single transaction that occurs. So they're able to make money off of all of these offline transactions. We've got about 10,000 restaurants, a bunch of national brands are starting to join the platform. And we can really work with just about any website or app who has a large consumer base who would be interested in saving money with offline purchases. Um, it's called card linked offers is sort of the, uh, the boring way to say it. We like to say online to offline. Uh, and, and it's just fairly new, a couple of years old and it's going pretty crazy, uh, fast growth so far. So it's keeping me busy. Awesome. So let, let's, let's use a practical example. Let's say, you know, Mr. Eric Sue's uh, Chinese orange chicken store or something. Uh, so how, how does this work when I, if I sign up for empire? Yeah. So if you're a merchant and you sign up for empire, you just, you just sign up. It's really easy. It's um, you give us what's called an MID merchant identification number and some of your basic business information. And you're you're up and live on the platform in about seven to 10 days. And then we take that and, and, and we create an offer with you, something like, say, 10 percent cash back, something to attract the consumers in. We then take that offer and we distribute it on some of the best websites and apps. It's really any website or app can participate. But we happen to start with some of the big guys. So Yelp.com, um, Microsoft, Coupons.com, Living Social, Bank of America.com, a bunch of airlines. Uh, you'll, your offer will be distributed to all of those and they'll market it to their consumers when consumers see it. And if they want to get 10% off, they link up their card to whichever website and app they saw it on. They would walk in, enjoy a great meal. The server would bring over the check and they would just drop in the debit or credit card that they had linked up 
uh, into the bill. And it can be any debit or credit card that's already in their wallet. We work with Visa, MasterCard, American Express directly. So that's how the tracking is done. The server, not knowing any better, will just walk to the back and swipe the card in the POS system just like they normally do. And within about five or 10 seconds, the consumer will get an alert from whichever website they signed up on that they just earned some cash back. And then we'll also alert the business owner that they just got a sale. And at the end of the month, the business owner will get a uh, sort of an invoice. It'll say, look, you got 2 million impressions across all of these various websites. Out of that, 1,000 people linked up their card. 1,000 people came in and bought from you, generated you, you know, $10,000. So you owe $1,000 in cash back to those consumers, and then we charge them what's known as a pay-per-sale fee, and that's usually like another 10%, and we take that, and then we share that with like Yelp and all the other websites and apps. Whoever signed up that consumer, on every purchase, they get a piece of that pay-per-sale fee. Got it. Okay. So um, this is the merchant side, and it sounds like you know mainly right now you guys are going for the, the, the big dogs like Yelp, you know, just so you guys can it's, – it's easier to go through through that direction, right? Yeah, well, we like the big guys because if you sign up one, you know, one deal, you get you know a lot of revenue without a lot of management. But but we have opened it up to really, uh, you know, any website or app that has a decent sized consumer base. We just launched a program. So so right now, the way Yelp brings in these offers is through our API. What's a, what's I mean, a decent size, really quick? I'd say like a million a million members. Okay, uh, would be really good. But like like I said, I mean, we're starting to. Uh, even be able to take on companies that have a hundred thousand, like you got an app that has a hundred thousand users, you probably can still do pretty well on the platform. The, what we did is so the first way we launched this was an API. So, you know, Yelp would invest a month or two months worth of development, pull in all these offers, create a place where consumers can link up cards on Yelp and do like a whole program, uh, you know, with Yelp through the API and, and with a couple of developers. Well, a lot of websites and apps don't have, a lot of development resources. So we built a private label version now where we basically have a whole working, you know, sort of website that's responsive, that shows you all the offers, allows you to link up cards as a consumer. And we just slap your logo on there, change the colors out. So it looks like a part of your website and then you can link to it and market it without having to do a lot of development. And you make money again on every transaction your consumers do once they link up that card at any one of the 10,000, you know, merchants that are out there. So it's, it's a pretty good monetization channel. Typically we're seeing about $2 a month per active user is what our, we call them publishers. Wow. Or what the websites are asked to make. So, you know, if you can get a, you can get a million users linked up to, you know, to link up their cards uh, and be active on a monthly basis, you know, you have too many in revenue. That's pretty, pretty typical what we're seeing today. Okay. And how many users do you have um, on Empire right now? Yeah. So we don't talk about monthly active users um, because then you could decipher our revenue pretty easily. But what we do talk about is through the partnerships that we have, there's literally hundreds of millions of consumers um, that are that you could reach as a business owner. So we, you know, Yelp has 80 million monthly active uniques in the U.S. and Coupons.com has 25 million and Living Social, you know, they have 40 million people. Bank of America has 60 million. So you start to get into hundreds of millions pretty quickly. Um, ultimately, people that have actually linked up their cards is around 80 million. Um, and 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 I think you'll find nowadays, like if you wanted to get into the space, people link up cards a lot more openly than they used to. I mean, we link our cards to Uber, we link our cards to Spotify, we link our cards to everything, right? So when they see all these great offers that they can get, they just have to link up their card one time to your website or app and then just run around and buy like they normally do and just start earning cash back. Um, you know, the offering is pretty compelling. We've been able to get a lot of consumers to link up. So how many, how many of these enterprise level customers do you have? Let's say the Yelps of the world. 
Yes, a couple dozen of those so far. Got it. Okay, so a couple dozen. How did you go about getting your first, let's just say your first 10? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, everything's pretty new for us because we've just, we had our first partner go live, which was Living Social, I want to say a year and a couple months ago. So all of these have come within the last year and a half. And some of them are for me directly. And then we have, you know, one or one full-time guy working on these deals and then two people that are part-time. And every one of the four of us that are going after these deals are pretty uh, experienced, sort of what I would call high-end BD guys, um, 10, 15 years of experience going after these deals. And each one, some of them came from conferences. And I even though conferences are kind of old school and not like cool and, and, and hip and, and techie, they work because those face-to-face meetings are incredible. In fact, I'll share a little insider info into like how I got the Yelp deal, which I think for us is like the holy grail. Yelp is the biggest sort of online to offline search company on the planet, pure play search company. Google's the biggest, but they're not a pure play in terms of you know looking for offline businesses. You use that a lot to look for online businesses. So I always wanted to, to, to nail that deal. I thought that would be the biggest one possible. And I got this email in like November of last year and it said, you know, it was from this company Street Fight. They, they throw these conferences and it was like, hey, we're having this conference out in Colorado at some ski resort. It's kind of like executives only, C-level for the most part, um, really intimate, you know, 30 or 40 of us going, 3,000 bucks or something like that. And I was like, man, I don't know. You know, it's like $3,000. It's like three or four days out of the work the work week. I'm so busy right now to really want to do this. I ended up just sort of last minute. Well, I asked him for a, a list of who would be there. And one of the people there was from Yelp. I was like, all right, so there's a chance, you know, that we just might be able to pull this off. And last, I, I'll never forget. I was tired. I was just about to delete the email. And I'm like, man, this could, this could be a game changer if we did it. And so I, I just, I took the chance and we went out there and I happened to you know, have drinks at the bar after the first couple events and happen to meet the gentleman from Yelp, who was the perfect person to make the deals with. And it was such a good fit. I mean, I knew it would be when we when we talked to him about it. I knew they just had to get Did you meet him by chance or did you arrange to, to meet up with him? I mean, I was ready to stalk him if I had to, <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, like, but but there was like 40 people there and there was a little bit of luck involved in the sense that like not everybody went to the bar afterwards. There was maybe 10 people out of the 40. He happened to also like to drink like I do. And, uh, and, and, you know, and I, I knew who he was cause somebody else pointed out earlier and we, it was sort of chance combined with a little bit of, of effort. But once we started talking, everything then became just sort of natural. It's, it's such a great culture fit. Their company is so cool. Like the, the culture over there, I couldn't speak highly enough about it. And he's just an amazing, amazing guy to work with. And ultimately everything just sort of happened naturally after that. And that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you meet the company and you're like, I really want to work with them. And they end up being, you know, really cocky or very difficult to, you know, to, to take the time to hear you out. But I found Yelp to be just a great culture. Everybody we worked with over there so far is amazing. Cool. So it sounds like one, one of the secrets is to actually, you know, go to one of these conferences that people are at, you know, and then meet them up in person and develop that relationship and, and take things further, right? I would say that's probably 50% of the deals we have. The other 50% so literally just like conferences, the old school tech, the other 50% have come from, I would say like probably about 10 to 15% have actually come from cold LinkedIn reach outs. So I don't do that personally, but my, the guy we have full time working on BD, that's one of his techniques and it actually works. Um, he'll go and find the, you know, CMO or C or, or chief product officer, or head of biz dev at these companies and reach out cold with a little short, short email. It's like, it's like a line or two. 
that just you know talks about we're trying to help you guys monetize online to offline and he gets responses i mean we actually we got into facebook uh you know a very high level person using using linkedin cold it just so happened that facebook was looking for this type of solution so you know you've got to get a little bit fortunate there in, in terms of timing but if they're looking for it and you're offering it and you just get a short quick message through linkedin that works really well as well and then a bunch of others have come from um connections. So like, I'll know somebody, tell them what I do. And they'll say, Oh, I know so-and-so over at, you know, MapQuest, you should talk to them. Or, you know, they, they'll kind of, once they get what you do, they can help introduce you. And I think that's so important to just spend as much time as you can, like sharing your idea and talking to as many people about what the idea is, how it works. Because a lot of entrepreneurs, earlier stage, people with you know, just getting started are, are kind of like scared. They're like, somebody's going to steal my idea and copy it and, and, and beat me to the punch. You know, I think that kind of scarcity mentality is very hurtful to the entrepreneur. You need to have this abundance mentality, meaning there is so much opportunity that I need to tell as many people as I can because they can introduce me to investors, to potential partners, to potential employees. And sure, along the way, the idea will get out there and maybe somebody will say, that's a great idea. I want to I try to copy that. But that's going to happen anyways. If your idea really is that good and the market really is that great, I mean, maybe you can buy yourself an extra six months by keeping your mouth shut, but not that much time you're going to buy. And, and you'll lose out on all the potential growth opportunities and investment opportunities that will come by networking. So I'm like, as soon as I come up with an idea, I just can't shut up about it. I tell everybody I come in contact with and not only just for the, you know, getting partnerships, getting employees, getting investment, but also to get feedback. So people can tell you, you know what, that idea is really, really good or that idea is horrible and won't work. And you want to get as much of that feedback as early as possible. So it's just so much better to just share the idea and talk to as many people as you can. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think the the whole abundance thing, I think, you know, so one of the businesses we have is a, is a marketing agency. And, you know, in the past, you know, we're talking probably five, six years ago, it's like, yeah, we got to hog everything. But now it's just like, you know, if we can't help, we're going to refer the business out to other uh, other businesses. And then at the same time, you know, talking about business, uh, other startups, um, you know, there, there's, we might, some people try to hide it and then not tell anybody until it like starts doing well. But if you tell everybody, it also kind of holds you accountable too, right? Yeah, it makes you really focus in on the product and the user experience and the idea early on, which is the time you should. You don't want to, you know, raise ten million bucks and uh, and then realize you've got kind of a flawed model because then you're really big trouble because uh, you're not going to be able to raise that follow-on round and you've already got a high valuation and you've got to get the revenue now. I've seen a lot of companies end up in that like valley of death where they. You know, they got a decent traction. They got a bunch of early adopters. It worked pretty well with the early adopters. They didn't quite cross the chasm. This happened to us actually uh, as well, like five years ago. And then and then you raise a bunch of money at a great valuation. And then all of a sudden, like the early adopter kind of phase goes into the normal mainstream and they're not nearly as active in the product. They're not nearly as, um, you know, sort of viral with it. They don't tell as much friends and all of your metrics start to like curve. Right. Frown, you know, the frowny curve is what we used to call it. <laughs> And you're like, uh oh, you know, that's not good. And, you know, and, and hopefully you've got enough capital to figure it out. But it's very difficult because if you do have to pivot, you use most of the money typically to pivot and, and work on the new, you know, the, the sort of change in your business model. And by the time you're sort of out of that money, you probably don't have a ton of revenue yet on the pivot. And then you've got to raise money at a down round or something like that. And so, you know, that's that's a bad place to be. It's possible to work your way out of that. And, and we you know, we personally have Empire is a pivot from the original business model where we tried to uh, we came up with this idea. We wanted to sign up all the users 
and all of the advertisers ourselves and just build our own little online to offline network called Mogul, M-O-G-L. And it went, you know, we had huge traction in the early days. And then once we got to the mass markets, the traction, the numbers just didn't hold up. And it was so expensive to sign up all the advertisers and sign up all the consumers. Such a better model as a platform. I mean, just no cost to acquire users, no cost to acquire advertisers. But, uh, you know, it took us a while to learn that. And, and I think, you know, if looking back in hindsight, I did spend a lot of time trying to flesh out the model and stuff, but I probably still didn't spend enough. Like I should have just nonstop been testing sort of growth hacking the heck out of it, um, trying to get to the mass market with as little capital as possible instead of relying that the numbers of the early adopters would hold. Uh, and so looking back, I mean, that's, that's why I do just, you, you can never get enough users on the platform before you raise a bunch of money to really see what happens when you get a hundred thousand people using your product, a million people using your product. Cause that first tens of thousands, those numbers may not hold is what we learned. Love it. So I want to backtrack a little bit to the LinkedIn, uh, the template that you use. You said it's a one liner. What is, what does it actually say? Yeah, it's, I think it's two lines technically, um, <laughs> I'm probably butchering this because it's not me. It's it's, it's my team member, uh, Peter, who sends it out. But it was something like, you know, hey, um, we've got a we've got an online to offline monetization platform. Not sure you're the right person to talk to about this, but who would be something like that? So you're you're taking the <laughs> pressure off of them to, like, get you to somebody else. And you just want to explain what you do in a sentence and then say like, who should you connect us to? Uh And a lot of times, I mean, we've gotten connected to other people in the organization. They've been like, yeah, this isn't me, but let me just forward you over because that sounds intriguing. (laughs) And other times we've had like people like, you know, like in the Facebook example, it's like, we are working on exactly what you guys are doing. So we should talk. So yeah, one sentence telling what you're doing and one sentence asking for who's the right person to talk to. I love that. It. Well. You know, the, the thing is, like, a lot of people will talk about uh, predictable revenue or they'll read online for like sales templates and they'll literally copy it word for word, almost word for word, maybe replace the company name. And that's how these templates die out because everybody keeps saying the same thing. But what you guys are doing is it's basically it's it's very short and you guys are customizing it. And it's also in some cases, if you're going to Facebook, you're tailoring it, too. So, you know, that makes a world of difference in terms of getting people to respond. And you guys are a perfect example of that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Yep, you do yep. customization as much as you can. And- Customize. Tell me about one big struggle you faced while growing Empire. It sounds like things have been going well, but I'm sure there's there has to be some bumps along the way. Well, I think the biggest bump was the one I just brought up where we where we pivoted from Mogul, which was a consumer facing brand. We had our own app and website where you could earn, you know, link up your card to our app and website and go earn cash back at all of these various uh, you know, restaurants that we'd signed up. And that and in the early years, we had maybe a couple hundred merchants, mostly in Southern California. Um, and pivoting from that consumer-facing brand to a B2B brand, which we are now, which is a platform, has been uh, incredibly challenging. It's probably one of the most challenging things I've had to do as an entrepreneur. I've, I've been running companies for 17 years. And the first company was you know, a credit card I got in college sort of funded the whole operation. I, I built the website for 300 bucks. You know, my neighbor did for me. I just had a couple thousand dollars and, you know, bootstrapped the whole thing. And and the second company was also bootstrapped. It wasn't until, you know, the third one started raising venture capital. And raising venture capital is great because you have capital to work with. And I remember like dreaming of having capital to work with when I was bootstrapping and saying, oh, I could be so much bigger and it would be amazing to have a million dollars to spend. Well, when you start raising venture capital, uh, it's amazing how fast that concept 
gets to tens of millions. I mean, we've raised now close to 40 million and, you know, you can easily have a burn rate of half a million dollars with just, you know, 40 employees or 30 employees. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got, you've got to be able to hit really big numbers in order to get to, you know, the next round and it to be an up round. And so there's this new added pressure that is fine as long as the company doesn't need to pivot. But I think a lot of companies have to pivot. I heard a stat somewhere that the average successful company has pivoted 2.7 times. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, you've got like Twitter has pivoted. Uh, you know, it, it didn't start out that way. Just a lot of companies that we, you know, Groupon was a pivot. There's just been tons of pivots. And, and it's really hard when you raise a bunch of capital and invest and then you've got to pivot. That capital wasn't intended to support you through a pivot. So you really have to make some tough decisions. You've got to typically do rounds of layoffs. You've got to work twice or three times as hard. And you were already working really hard as a startup founder. It's just naturally hard. But now you've got to do the work of two or three people because you couldn't afford to keep them on. Everybody, the company's got to do that. There's a lot of stress. I think what happens is you end up losing uh, a lot of people. They sort of get scared that it's not going to work. It's not going to make it. I mean, I had my COO quit, which was devastating. He was a co-founder, and I'd been working with him for like eight years. And my CFO quit all within the same month. Wow. Uh, right sort of at the beginning of this pivot. How did you realized, deal with that? You know, it feels like a punch in the stomach when it first happens. It like literally knocks the wind out of you. It's incredibly painful, and um, especially when you have a close relationship. I think as entrepreneurs, we like, we're so married to our ideas. They're like our flesh and blood. And ultimately, we feel like we're a wolf pack with everybody around us. Like, we're going to make it no matter what. And then when somebody just like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> You're just like, what? How, you know, how could you give up on, on all of us and on this idea and everything? And it just nobody's as married to the idea as the entrepreneur. And so it just, it's incredibly personal and very painful. And I think you just have to, um, you just have to deal with it. Like, and, and, and what I found, so when we were going through what I would call the dark period, you know, where we didn't have revenue growth and we were trying to build this stuff out as quickly as possible um, to so we could, you know, do the pivot with the money we'd raise without having to raise too much more. And it was a lot of like simple things to make it through all the pain. You know, it's like working out. Like I started doing the scientific seven minute workout every morning. I didn't have a lot of time to work out of the gym. So I just did this scientific seven minute app. Worked great. I, I would stay healthy. I would stay fit. I would stay sort of mentally sharp. Uh, meditation helped a lot. Um, and I think always keeping focused on that light at the end of the tunnel. Hope is such a powerful thing as an entrepreneur. And you just have to latch on to that no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody tells you. Otherwise, you would just give up. I mean, it's so hard and it's their chances are so slim that if you don't have a tremendous amount of faith and hope that that your idea is right and that this pivot is going to work, then then you probably will give up because you get beat up over and over and over again. Uh, you know, even while we were trying our pivot, not only were like big high level people quitting, but um, we were, we, we kind of didn't quite have the perfect model. We tried a couple things that sort of failed. We we're sort of pivot, like minute, mini pivoting until we got to this idea we have today, which is, you know, which is going tremendously well. It's zero to, uh, you know, eight figures in revenue in, in less than a year. I mean, couldn't, couldn't be happier, but that was like almost impossible, like a total pipe dream, like just two and a half years ago. I mean, if I would have told investors that that was going to happen, they would have said, I'm overly optimistic. <laughs> I need to be more realistic. Um, so yeah, sometimes you're the only one that believes, but, but I will say in the 
point where my COO left and my CFO, even though it's incredibly painful and personal, you can't take it personally and you have to keep that relationship intact. Like I wanted to tell him to just, you know, F off and like, I hate you and I can't believe you're leaving me, but you know, I did it. And, and, and I said, you know, like, I sort of understand I'm hurt, but you know, let's, let's keep in touch. And, and what's ended up happening is that COO has now come back to join the company because he went off to work at a big company that offered him, you know, twice the salary and this crazy equity pack, you know, it's crazy large sort of salary package. But then he, he wasn't happy there like he was here. I mean, it's really fun working at a startup when you're all huddled together and trying to change the world. And so, you know, he came back and, and my CFO quit. We stayed really good friends. He invited me to his wedding, which was a blast. And thank goodness I didn't miss that. So I think just in general, you never know where those things are going to come back around. I've actually had a couple people now sort of quit and come back. And uh, and it feels great to, to bring them back on when everything's working. And I think you just kind of have to be expecting some of that to happen. Right. Like, you know, that's just part of the part of the really challenging thing about being an entrepreneur that you don't always hear about on TechCrunch and stuff like that. They're always talking about like, oh, I started a business. It was a great idea. And I won and I'm rich. Woo. You know, and like, <laughs> I think, yep. you know, a lot of companies probably, you know, like we were just talking about 2.6% pivot. You don't always hear about those stories or like how hard it gets in the middle of that pivot. But, you know, I'm here to tell you that sometimes it works out really well if you stick with it like really, really well, but it's, you know, it's definitely painful during those years. Yeah. So to recap, you know, my, my next question was going to be, you know, you, you founded five internet companies. What, what's like the, the, the one thing that the one thing that you constantly experience, and it sounds like getting punched in the gut all the time and having hope to, to get you, take you through the, you know, the hell, I guess. Right. Yeah. I, I really do. The older I get, I think you're sort of born an entrepreneur because you have to have this resilience level, um, that is sort of like, probably a mental disorder, like some kind of bipolar or something, yeah, because I hear you. you have to be able to take just incredible amounts of abuse and be able to stay like incredibly positive to the point where you're energized and like fired up and trying to fire up other people. And, uh, and that just, that's not something you can teach. That's sort of something that you have. So if you have that, you're in the right industry, like never give up and be an entrepreneur. I think nowadays you get a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs because it's kind of sexy and cool. And like, you know, I'll get rich and all that kind of stuff. And I think those are the people that like quit after like the first, you know, couple setbacks. They're like, oh, yep, not a good model. I'm going to go change, change to my next startup idea. And, you know, now I've got a failure on my belt. So I'm like, I'm like a real entrepreneur. Like, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, you probably shouldn't have quit. And you probably could have stuck with that for a couple more years. And you probably could have turned it into an amazing business. So I'm just a big fan of like never giving up, having that resilience. And I think you owe it to um, yourself and your investors and your employees and everybody to see, you know, see if you can pull something off there. I think there's a movement I've noticed of like just giving up early. And I don't know where that's coming from. Like I know they celebrate failure sort of in the Bay Area, but we got to not celebrate it too much. Like <laughs> we got to celebrate resilience. You know, we got to celebrate like never giving up and constantly tweaking the model until you get it right. Because that's what you know. That's where great businesses are are often formed. Yeah, and I think I think the one thing that that might help training resilience, and this is due to my um, this is due to me being a degenerate in college um, and, and playing a lot of online poker is playing <laughs> poker because you know that requires a lot of resilience because you're gonna get punched in the gut 
quite a bit. Even if you're one of the best players in the world, you're, you might lose for a couple months at a time, sometimes even a year. So, you know, you, if you want to train that up a little bit before even jumping into entrepreneurship, I recommend, you know, jumping into your local Indian casino or something and playing some poker. That is actually a really good analogy. I like that a lot because <laughs> yeah, you get beat up a lot. And in the poker, there's luck involved. And I think in the entrepreneur game, there's absolutely luck involved, too. So sometimes you got to like have the wisdom to know like that's something I can't control and it just screwed me. Shoot. Yep. <laughs> Time to get back up, dust myself off and, you know, go at it again. Uh, would you say, I mean, at this point you've become pretty numb to, you know, the the bad stuff that happens. You kind of move on quickly. You know, I wish I could say I do, but like I'm a pretty emotional guy. It still hurts me. You know, I, I had somebody quit a couple months ago and I was like, oh, it still hurts. And I'm like, and now the business is doing really well. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> but they just got a big, you know, big title increase, uh, you know, that they, that they couldn't have got here. They got a CEO role. So I wasn't obviously quitting anytime soon. So I understood, but it still hurt. It's still painful, you know, and um, I don't think you go numb to it. You know, it's funny, like I go, I'm going to Necker Island next week to hang out with Richard Branson. And I've been fortunate enough, one of my board members knew him. And so I've gone to the island now probably seven or eight times. And he is the most emotional dude on the planet. Really? It's going to kill me for saying this, but he cries during commercials. Like I kid you not get something cries during sad commercials. I think being emotional is part of being an entrepreneur. If you were just numb to all of it, you probably wouldn't have the high highs that like make you work crazy hours and make you, you know, believe in crazy ideas and, and do crazy things. I think, emotions can fuel you. And I don't think you end up ever becoming numb. Um, I think you just get used to really high highs and low lows. You know, being an entrepreneur is absolute roller coaster. The highs are the highest highs, you know, better than sex and drugs in, in many cases when you really knock it out of the park. Um, but also the lows are incredibly depressing and like everything is collapsing around you. I think like I said, I mean, I think you're sort of like you have some makeup in your DNA that allows you to sort of flourish in that type of environment. And if you do, like, don't ever stop becoming an entrepreneur because you'll never find that high and low in anything else, you know, that you do in life besides building companies. It's the only 365 days a year, 24-7, nonstop. I mean, you're sleeping as an entrepreneur because <laughs> you're dreaming of business ideas and you're waking up and you can't fall back asleep because you're thinking about it. Like, it's just... It's just always on high, low emotional roller coaster, and uh, and that's what we love about it. Like that's why when I try to retire, that's why I found was one of the things I missed. You know, immediately was the lack of really exciting, you know, a really exciting life. Uh, surfing all day and drinking booze was really cool <laughs> for three weeks, and then it was really boring. Awesome, awesome. Um, capping off here, two more questions on my end. What's one new tool that you added in the last year that's added a lot of value? One new tool. Um, you know, I've got this blog post on this. It's sort of a system that I've developed, and it's been a work in progress for 17 years. And what it's called is the five steps to great execution. And it actually, great is, you know, G-R-E-A-T. Each stands for one of the five steps. And Again, it's sort of been developed and tweaked over 17 years. And now when we deploy this, it's a way to get any, it's a way to hit any goal and get anything done. And it talks about, you know, you got to set the goals correctly. You got to have real goals, measurable, actionable goals. You've got to have reporting so that you can see how you're doing towards those goals. That's where a lot of companies stop. Um, I think one of the most important things is the letter E, which is evaluate. 
So every week, you've got to have a weekly meeting to evaluate the progress that you're making towards that goal. And inside those meetings, there's short 30-minute meetings. You've got 10 minutes for um, issues that have come up. You've got 10 minutes for ideas to improve those issues. And then the last 10 minutes is to find the top two things that you are going to work on or you're going to commit to over the next week to get done that will move that goal forward. And then um, the, t- uh, the uh, A is just putting it into your agenda. So putting that time to work on those top twos into your calendar, set times that never move, that you always work on those top twos to make sure they're always getting done. And then T is just take care of business. Get it done. Get those top twos done. If you do that, you follow that great execution roadmap, you can accomplish anything and any team can accomplish anything. And I find a lot of teams and a lot of companies, they're just missing one or two of those letters and it, the whole thing crumbles and you end up at 75% or 85% to your goal over and over and over again. Awesome. We're going to link that up in the show notes. What's one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone? Just one. Oh, I love reading. So that is so tough. Uh, I've got so many ones that I, I just the absolutely love. The first one that love. comes to mind. You know, uh, shoot, there's actually a couple like, uh, <laughs> it's so hard to nail down. I like Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. It's great for culture. And I'm a huge believer that culture goes a real long way in business. <laughs> so I'll just stick with that if I'm only a one. Yeah, great book, great book. Um, okay, cool. Well, John, this has been awesome. What's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah, so the best way is my blog where you can find that great execution blog. It's just johncarter.com, J-O-N. It's spelled funky. So J-O-N-C-A-R-D, D as in David, E-R.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at John Carter. Uh, also works as well. Awesome. Great. John, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Eric. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.